Please pray with me. Father, I thank you for the hope that you have given us in the resurrection. A hope that is so complex and so deep that we cannot begin to understand it. Of this we praise you. In the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Amen. I'm going to try this again, uh, lest I blow you out of your seats. Uh, Nick, can you turn my mic off, please? You should move back. (laughs) Um, Today, I want to talk to you about the hope we have in the resurrection and what's in our passage. I'm going to be taking Acts as my text for today. uh, And anymore, I feel like when I prepare Bible studies or sermons, uh, if if I had my way when uh, the reader started and finished, we'd begin with, in the beginning was... Uh, God created, and we'd end with the ending to Revelation, and we'd be here for quite a while taking in Scripture to understand that one word that I want to talk to you about. Um, so the the story we've got, Peter and John going to the temple, we weren't able to cover all of it, but but I want you to have it in mind, so let me summarize it for you. So this is the story. Peter and John, it's after both the resurrection and Pentecost, and they're going about daily life. And they go to the temple. It's about 3 p.m. It's time for evening prayer, and they're going to pray. And as they go, they pass by a man who's lame from birth. And as he's begging for alms, they go to him, and not having gold or silver, they give to him what they have healing in Jesus' name. Now, everyone who witnesses this is astounded. They're astonished. And Peter preaches to them, and he explains that, indeed, this is from Jesus and proclaims the resurrection from the dead in Jesus, and thousands come to faith. Now, the temple leadership, they get upset about this, and they take Peter and John and arrest them and put them in prison and bring them to trial. During the trial, Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, witnesses to Christ, which the Sanhedrin does not know what to do with because all the people of Jerusalem have seen this thing. And so, warning them sternly not to preach in Jesus' name, They let them go home. And that's Monday and Tuesday of Peter and John's week, right? Uh, Quite a start to the week. And uh, as we look at this, I don't know about you, but sometimes I read stories and I think, I'm not quite sure how this shows up in my life, Uh, but I know it does, and so we're going to talk about that. We're going to look at it in three acts three sections of this story, and the first one starts out in 
chapter 3. We didn't read that yet, so let me read that for you. Starting in chapter 3, verse 3, it says, Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk. And he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. Much there, but I want to draw your attention to this one little oddity. When Peter and John pause to respond to his request for alms, Peter says, look at us. Which is strange. It's just strange. And, and I think this is what Luke is doing. The look at us, I believe Luke wants us to go back to Numbers. Numbers chapter 21 has this curious story of the serpent that gets lifted up. If you recall, the Israelites have grumbled against Moses, against God, and punishment of serpents in the camp that are biting them and they're dying from and they're told, Moses is told, make this bronze serpent and raise it up above, and anyone who looks upon the serpent when they are bit will survive. And what is this? This is pointing to Christ, of course, who is also raised up high. And when we look to Christ, in his name we are saved. But that doesn't necessarily make this any clearer because Peter isn't saying, look at Christ. And then we proclaim this to you. No, he says, look at us, which is just odd. I think this is the significance that just as the snake, which was raised up, an image, which when looked upon the healing of God came to you, so in this moment, Peter and John, images of the one true God, when looked upon, healing comes to you. (coughs) This is the part of the hope of the resurrection we have, that in Christ we are once again enabled to walk as image bearers we've always been and called to be. Colossians 2.12 says, Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. Christ's resurrection shows him to be who he claimed to be. It exonerates him. It shows before all peoples that what he said is true. And quite apart from a false prophet, he was talking truth. It means you really are forgiven. (coughs) And the implications here as we look at Peter and John as they are about their work is that when they pray and we pray with them things like, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is heaven. It is we, we, the redeemed, who are his agents to accomplish God's will and to invite all people to live and walk in that. 
So I ask you, where do you see God calling you to participate in bringing the kingdom? Because surely he has called you and equipped you. Our next bit I want to draw your attention is in Acts 3, starting in chapter verse 11. He says, while he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astonished, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us? As though through our own power or piety we have made him walk. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses, and his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. So here's, here's the hope of the resurrection and the good news for all of us. It's that healing is of God. Which the corollary means it isn't of us. Right? If Peter and John are being image bearers and when people interact with them, when they are executing God's will and bringing healing into this world, <clears throat> it is the name of Jesus and faith, by faith in that name, that heals and restores. Peter is very clear on this. He says it's, it's not our power, it's not our godliness, not our piety. We have no ability in those things to bring this. No, it is Christ Jesus who does this. So what happens when we forget that? Well, if we forget that healing isn't of us, that it is God's purview, then we fall into this trap. We keep running. Every ministry opportunity that comes up, we can't pass it by. Every opportunity to be God's image bearer, to proclaim the gospel, to love our neighbor, we have to do all of them, all of them. And why? Not because we feel called to it, truly. It's because we think that if we don't do them, it won't happen. That that person will be hurt. That person won't be cared for. That God is calling us to do everything that ever passes in front of us, and we are actually capable of it, which is in my own life, I must say, quite a streak of pride, right? We're human. We're finite. That's okay. In fact, Jesus, even Jesus, every ministry opportunity, he didn't attend to. He says, I do the will of my Father. If we forget that healing is of God, then we try to do it all in our power. And if we don't do it that way, thinking that it all depends on us, then we get lost in the, look at what I've done. You see me? That was a great prayer, wasn't it? I saw those people. I was able to help those people. We forget that all this healing is of Christ, and we are only his agents. 
about godliness. Well, if we think that godliness is how healing comes, our piety, our purity, well, then God gets made out to be a cosmic vending machine. And our efforts, our earnestness, our orthodoxy are the cash that gets out that candy bar you need at the moment. I don't know about you, but I run into this when I'm praying. I realize that I don't actually believe the promises of God always. And so you have to have the right words, the most complex words, the words that fully understands the situation as if there's some sort of magic key to get the healing or attention or encouragement that you need or someone else needs. It depends on you. Or, or, right, I've sinned in the last week, so I can't do that because I'm not right with God, so he's not going to pay attention to me. He won't actually use me as his agent. So I have to go, and I've got to work really hard on being good and pure before I can go do ministry, before I can be a Christian in the world. And boy, that's a trap we'll never get out of, isn't it? It's hard to do God's will and entrust the outcome to him. Sometimes fear comes up and we're afraid that we're going to look crazy or we're going to come off as stupid. We're going to hurt someone because we're not actually doing God's will. All of this, all of this are traps when healing is of us and not of God. Peter says, and this is the weight that has been lifted off of us all, healing is from God and not of us. It's not in your power or your godliness to which it comes. So I ask you, is there anything you're trying to do that's actually Jesus' job and you need to stop? It's not your burden to carry. Do what he's called you to do but don't try to be him. The last hope in the resurrection that I want to highlight to you, if we remember that we've been freed to be God's witnesses, to be faithful witnesses in this world, and if we remember that it's God's power that brings healing and salvation, <coughs> and as him that has saved us and will be saving the world, not we ourselves, then we will be faithful witnesses in all circumstances and rest in God's promises. This next bit, we need to look at a couple settings and characters that show up in this story. It's important to note here, Peter and John, after they have been arrested, they are dealing with the rulers, the elders, and the teachers of this law. And Luke is careful to point out that some of these are Sadducees. Now, Sadducees, a political group at this time, uh, they're not a sect, uh, they're not part of different theological beliefs. Uh, they're actually the elite power brokers, so to speak, in this area. They're wealthy. They're influential. They have ties to the Roman government. They have pull and sways there. At the same time, they don't believe in a final judgment or eternal existence. Eternal life is not actually living, but that your name never dies, that you keep having children and your name is preserved. 
and there's no resurrection. How convenient. Those who have the power and the money have this theology about them as well. Setting. John and Peter have gone to the temple, and they end up, Luke tells us, in Solomon's portico. Now, this has been a setting for a couple very important points in the overall story of Jesus' life. We see one in John 10:23. He's teaching and in the temple, and the Jews come to him, and they say, don't hold us in suspense. Tell us, are you the Messiah? And he says then, I am the father of one. And those who are so hopeful scoop up rocks to stone him. They understand he's making a divine claim and they're upset about it. That's happened at Solomon's portico. Now also in Matthew 21, the day of his procession in, Palm Sunday as we call it, this is where he drove out the money changers where he used a whip to shut down the temple. That's also in Solomon's portico. Now, one of those Sadducees we just talked about, his name's Caiaphas. He's the high priest at the moment. He's the one who put the money changers there. Yeah? He wasn't very happy when Jesus drove them out. It's part of the reason why Jesus was killed. Now, here some 50-plus weeks after Jesus was tried and sentenced to death. Peter and John have been in the exact same place, Solomon's portico, arrested and brought to trial. They're in the exact same spot. Not metaphorically, literally. They're standing in the spot that Jesus stood during his trial on that night. And guess what? Who's sitting in the seats? The same people who condemned Jesus. It's a good Monday, right? Yeah, we're doing the work of God, and here we are on trial. Not only on trial, but they're about to tell them, as they answer the question, in whose name and what authority do you do this? That guy that you killed for blasphemy? Well, not only do we think he's right, but that's how this is going on. John Stott, in his commentary on Acts, points out that in Revelation, the dragon's three allies are the three weapons wield against the church at the beginning of Acts. Those allies are persecution, moral compromise, and the danger of exposure to false teaching. When we read Acts and Revelation side by side, we get Luke accounting what can be seen with human eyes and John explaining what is going on in the spiritual reality of the world put together. Of all these things Revelation talks about, we are experiencing them all persecution, moral compromise, and danger of exposure to false teaching. The church around the world is beset by those. But our story is persecution, so let's talk about that for a moment. I've talked with some of you in the possibility that in our lifetimes we will see persecution dialed up in America is on your radar. I think it's a possibility. This is the reality. The church, just like her head, Jesus the Messiah, has been, is being, and will be trampled by the beasts of apocalyptic literature. Daniel 7 and the Revelation are key to understanding this. 
but we have the hope of the resurrection. It's not something we need to be worried about. It's not something that we need to be concerned about. It's not pleasant. Clearly, it's not pleasant. But just as Jesus before us and all the faithful martyrs throughout time and the confessors, those who have been killed for their faith and those who have confessed the faith and not dying for it, it is God's good pleasure to bring you into his work in this world. And there's a cost to that. Following Jesus is costly and that's okay. It's okay that serving God will cost us something because Jesus has promised to take care of us. It's not the last word. We have the hope of the resurrection. Not just in the age to come, but trickling and fading into this age as if it is impatient for the restoration of all things. So I ask you, do you fear the future? And when you fear it, do you remember our hope in the resurrection? This is the hope of the resurrection, and I hope that you see that it is more complex and more glorious than just a new body. Even now we have been saved and freed to do the will of God, and you've been given a calling. We've all been given a calling in the honor of walking with him and being his faithful witnesses. It's healing of God and not of ourselves. We are called to be witnesses not in our own power but in his. He promises to send his spirit to us to put his words in our mouths to care for us. You don't need to carry what's not yours. And finally, our future, which is secure, means whatever is taken from us, whatever is held from us, whatever is given up by us in this age is nothing compared to what will be ours and is ours even now in Christ Jesus. So there's much talk in our nation And I want you to have the hope of the resurrection and be at peace because Christ is Lord. He has saved you and he will make all things new. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.